0: The central goal of the terrorists is the brutal oppression of women, and not only the women of Afghanistan. The terrorists who help rule Afghanistan are found in dozens in dozens of countries around the world. And that is the reason this great nation with our friends and allies will not rest until we bring them all to justice. Thanks to our military and our allies and the brave fighters of Afghanistan, the Taliban regime is coming to an end. Yet our responsibilities to the people of Afghanistan have not ended. We work for a new era of human rights and human dignity in that country. The agreement reached in Bonn last week means that in 10 days, the international community will have a new partner, an interim government of a new Afghanistan.
1: What's up, everyone? Welcome to Desolation Radio. It's me, your boy Dan Evans. I'm joined, as ever, by the boy Nathan Cush. What's up, Nathan? All right, we're uh, we're back after a long period of
2: trying to um, find spiritual enlightenment, and That's right, man. We're back. yeah, we didn't find it, so now we're back to the podcasting.
1: <laughs> okay, as you all may have seen or may have noticed, almost immediately after Joe Biden pulled American troops out of the country the Afghanistan government and military fell and the Taliban took over Afghanistan. So after 20 years, uh, nearly $3 trillion spent by the US, uh, approximately £30 billion spent by the UK, but more importantly, at the cost of thousands and thousands of lives, uh, the Taliban are back in charge of Afghanistan, so just as they were before the NATO invasion.
2: We were saying there's that mantra that they had, wasn't it? You've got the clocks, but we've got the time. And then lo and behold, yeah.
1: It's, uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, you know, Wales, of course, has been deeply affected by the so-called war on terror. You know, as we pointed out in our episodes on militarism, you know, Wales had the second highest death rate of soldiers in Iraq after the USA. And obviously many working class communities across Wales have lost young men in both Iraq and Afghanistan, including, unfortunately, in Bridgend and Porthcourt, where Nathan and I are both from. You know, many more young soldiers returned home with PTSD. So the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, have certainly not been distant or abstract for everyone in Wales. So we think, obviously, you know, people deserve to know what happened in Afghanistan. You know, not least the people of Afghanistan who've suffered hugely, and of course the young men and, and the families of these young men who served and died there also deserve answers. Now, obviously, this won't be forthcoming from the mainstream media in the UK or Wales. But of course, you can rely on us to cover it. You know, over the last five years. This podcast is consistently focused on foreign policy, militarism, and imperialism. You know, bringing in depth analysis of the wars in the Middle East and the effects of militarism on Wales. But this stuff is what we do, it's what we've always done, and it's what we'll continue to do. So we're not going anywhere, just in case any of you are worried. This episode is part of a mini series which will look at Afghanistan and Western foreign policy in light of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. In the first episode, we're delighted to be joined by Dr. Frank Ledwich. So, Frank is a former military intelligence officer who served and commanded operations in the Balkans in Iraq, where he achieved the rank of lieutenant commander. After this, he worked as a civilian advisor in Afghanistan, including in Helmand province. He's also a barrister, and now a lecturer in Portsmouth Uni, where he teaches ethics. He's the author of the acclaimed book, Losing Small Wars, British Military Failure in Iraq and Afghanistan. And he also writes regularly for The Guardian on Defence and Foreign Policy. So I I guess you could say he knows what he's talking about. (laughs) Okay. Hope you enjoy. All right. Welcome, Frank. Thanks for coming on. Great to be here. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, we were saying just briefly um, offline, me and Nate that you're, you're the most accomplished man in the world. You know, like a, a, a military officer, barrister, and now an academic. Do you have time to do anything else? Or uh, well, Sorry, I, I, I just life. want to
3: to uh, 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 repeat what something we said <laughs> offline, which was <laughs> that I was mediocre at all of them and failed in most. So. <laughs>
4: We
1: we'll, we'll get into the book first, but just to briefly cover now obviously the immediate recent news you know, did you expect the Taliban advance on Kabul and you know, sort of the collapse of the, you know, the NATO backed uh, Afghan government and, and military to be as fast as it was No,
3: I don't think anyone did, including the Taliban yeah uh, who who I, I was talking to one of the journalists who was there who told, told me that the reason the Taliban entered that Sunday was that they felt that they, what they didn't want was another Baghdad mm. where you'd get the whole place being looted and everything yeah, falling yeah. into into chaos. So th- because the government collapsed so quickly and skedaddled with lots of money, mm. they thought, look, we have to get in here or else the whole thing is going to go to rat and this will not look good for us. And they, they know that, that obviously that was the right thing to do on all fronts. But the answer is no. And I think it points up, really, though, the Ernest Hemingway said that bankruptcy happens slowly, then suddenly. And this this campaign's been, as we'll discuss this at length, but it's been bankrupt for the last 15 years. And it just Mm. just it, it became very evident to everybody, including and even some of the more warlike members of our own parliament all too quickly. So, no, nobody, nobody expected this then. But they did expect it within, you know, perhaps a couple of months, the end of the fighting season, maybe, or certainly next fighting season, with the way the casualties were being sustained by Afghan forces.
1: Vice actually did a documentary, a mini documentary, like a couple of weeks, only a couple of weeks before sort of Kabul fell. I can't remember if it was before Kandahar fell or after, but they were embedded with sort of the the Afghan commandos who were, by all accounts, like extremely well trained and uh, equipped. And it was bizarre because obviously in this video they were saying like you know we've got no air support anymore and also they there was a scene where they sort of panned around to look at like the actual people who were fighting there was like a couple of commandos then they sort of like press ganged or co-opted like a couple of just like local lads in and just giving them like a couple of aks and then watching that you think ah, oh, yeah the writing was on the wall but also without making any moral judgments of either side like there were some you know, liberal commentators in the US and on Twitter in the UK who genuinely was, was sort of having a go at like the Afghan men, you know, like, why aren't they fighting against the Taliban? You're just looking at these videos and like, actually, they're, they are fighting and they're like dying in like mass numbers with like absolutely no chance of victory. It's just this surreal situation that these, these blokes are finding themselves in.
0: Yeah,
3: there was there was um, uh, one season in
1: 2016, you talked about Vice and a
3: friend of mine, Ben Anderson down there then with the two or five brigade, which is the Hellman brigade. Maybe that was the one on the telly. I don't know. But uh, although on the report you saw, I mean, and uh, the, he told me that they were taking 50% fatal casualties. That's that's probably more than well, you're looking there, but you know, for every fatal, they'd usually take two or three, two or three wounded, which obviously can't can't have happened. But you're looking at levels of casualties that you know British army will have seen in the First World War, and, and a unit that did, seen that kind of casualties would be pulled back and reformed and sent back in in nine months when they'd yeah, well. refilled the ranks, you know. And and the idea, you know, I got I got annoyed about this, too. Like the 66,000, I think, Afghan army people dead since 2015. And uh, you get you get these, as you say, liberal commentators. I'm thinking of CNN particularly yeah, yeah. where you'd have one little story where some guys uh, and this was in The Spectator, actually Clarissa Ward to be specific, said that uh, she'd seen a checkpoint disband, they took off the uniforms, put on civilian clothes and drove off. Well, I'd have done the Uh, same, you know? I mean, if you've got, if you've got coming down the road, fellows who are probably going to kill you, if you don't, well certainly will kill you if you don't surrender and might, if you do in a uniform, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And in a lost war where uh, your unit may have taken vast casualties and you yourself have to think about your family. And so what the, what the hell are you going to do? No, I, I think that that you're entirely right there. And some of it was misplaced. And again, some of the criticism from commentators about, about that ignored the fact that the, whilst this was all very quick and the collapse came quickly, the likelihood is, in fact, the certainty is that this kind of operation had been planned by the Taliban for some time. Yeah. They had been scoping out who they could get to defect at the highest levels. There'd been negotiations going on probably for months and a, a plan was put into operation that happened very quickly and probably they were disconcerted by it. Who knows? We'll find out eventually. But that this didn't happen by accident. And if you if you find yourself wound up in that as a and not terribly well-equipped and completely unsupported soldiers supporting, what, what, you're self-supporting what amounts to a vertically integrated organised crime structure, namely your
1: government, then you know, are you going to fight? No, of course you're not. I mean, obviously the whole thing has been underpinned by, like, you know, liberal Orientalism, but I thought some of that really sort of came out when Kabul fell, you know, the hysteria around that was attached to the Taliban in particular, you know, people were saying there's going to be massacres. There's almost this particular hysteria about, you know, the the Taliban as this sort of like particular demonic entity sort of seems to be conflating like the Taliban, like with ISIS almost. And like there, were, there was just loads of little things like people were laughing at like the videos of the Taliban going in like the fairground and going on the dodgems and playing volleyball and stuff. Part of that for me would just show that people didn't actually think that Afghans or the Taliban actual human beings, well, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. That term orientalism entirely applies to that. In the short term now then what I mean what do you expect to happen? Because the Taliban are not ISIS. They were once the legitimate government of Afghanistan and you know had you know had diplomats. They're now trying that again. From my perspective, they seem to be a group for all their terrible things they've done, they're a group which want to be taken seriously by the outside world and to just rule Afghanistan so what do you expect to happen? Right well first of all if you want to talk about
3: terrible groups of people certainly you could talk about the Taliban or ISIS but you could also talk about the various warlords that murdered, massacred and raped their way through Afghanistan during the 90s or were then installed by us and the Americans uh, to govern the place which is of course the reason the whole thing fell apart or one major reason for that and and one reason for the Taliban's success in that they stood against that kind of anarchic criminalism and opportunism epitomised by by the Afghan so-called government, much of the Afghan so-called government. But look, the Taliban, insofar as you can call them one organisation, represent a good 40 or more percent of, of the country in terms of culture. And I do think something gets missed, and it's probably almost unsayable, that most of the country is not living in the big cities. And for a really fantastic perspective on that you could you couldn't go do better than Anand Gopal and his book and various articles where he actually lives amongst ordinary rural Afghans who want nothing more than the ability to carry on their lives and their culture importantly which includes a very st- strong and perhaps to us uh, a strange strain of is- Islam but that's what many people want and there are certain unsayables that flow out of that there's the gap between the middle classes and the peasants, who are the vast majority of the country and those peasants, most of the men and women, hold views that would not sit well in North London. So what do I think will happen next? Well, first of all, the Taliban government or the new government are going to have to get all there, and I'm sure I think they're doing that, get their uh, various groups under some form of discipline, because there are several groups. Um, you know, you have the Haqqani network, you have certain, you know, the Kandaharis and Helmandis, which have a certain perspective, Born, born largely, I understand, out of the savagery with which they were fought by ourselves and the Americans. Uh, And uh, there are impulses there for revenge, for Badal, which is, you know, a very major part of Pashtun culture, which we don't like, but which they epitomise, sort of extreme version of it. And once they do get those those groups back in order, which I think they're probably doing now, Uh, I I think from from reading between the lines, what we'll see is is a Taliban that's going to be trying to be outward facing, whether it succeeds or not is another matter. But it also has to be accepted. We have to accept or at least we have to take on board the fact that the way they rule will attract the support of a considerable portion of of the country, whether that's 20 percent, 30 percent or 35. I don't know, but they're not. It's not as if they're in a foreign imposition Mm. in the same way as the government was. And uh, and clearly, you know, for those who do think like us uh, or more like us in places like Kabul, Jalalabad, kan- well, maybe not so much Kandahar, mazar sharif in the north, it's a very difficult time for them. And certainly there'll be murders and there'll be score settling. But it doesn't seem to me that there will be chaos. Mm. Uh, and after 42 years of war, I think a lot of people are very fed up of the chaos, mayhem war. And at the very least, there won't be people being bombed or killed by IEDs or suicide bombers. And that's a big plus to a lot of people in a country where that was the dominant factor of people's lives for many, many years.
2: I thought it was uh, really interesting, your book, just pointing out how unpopular and how terrible like the, the police force were. that they, you oh, the know, police. Like, just um what, what was the percentage that you gave was it 85 percent of organized crime and uh, um, was it like child oh, yeah. rape or something came from the police department
3: well I, there was i think there was a nice survey when i was there which is a good time ago now but it certainly didn't get any better where i think it was 80 percent or so of the <coughs> of the police were on some form of hard drugs uh, not much smaller percent amongst the army by the way but tend to be softer drugs the drugs mm. there and that the army were often seen as a more popular body because not because they were fighting the Taliban, because they protected the people and ensured that the police didn't get at them. Uh, no, I mean, look, it, the, the I, I used to go to checkpoints and police stations, and uh, these were you know, this was clockwork orange stuff, uh, you, yeah, you know,
1: and uh, bizarre. I mean, very, very baroque stuff really the institutionalized paedophilia is one of the yeah, things What yeah. you know speaking to my friends who who sort of came back from afghanistan one of the things that they were sort of most upset about was you know having to having to sort of deal that on uh, a yeah. daily basis you know the fact that the you know, police checkpoints would have young boys in in them for sort of uh, pleasure and so on but like we're not going to get sucked into that at the moment when, because it's to, a selling point for the taliban by the way dan who don't yeah yeah generally speaking, don't have that. Just to take two of the, I think, the points that emerged, again, from, from the hysteria that surrounded the 4 bull in the liberal media and certainly in like this, the part of Twitter that we unfortunately occupy um, as a podcast, is one, inter- it was interesting to see ostensibly progressive people just repeating the traditional liberal arguments for humanitarian intervention in the first place you know like women are going to be oppressed now LGBT people are going to be oppressed now uh, and then the logical conclusion will let's stay in Afghanistan and continue the occupation or or which is exactly the same justification used to to invade in the first place but the second point was the security establishment in the UK repeating this sort of again the same trope that was used to justify the invasion of Afghanistan in the first place Afghanistan is now going to be a haven for radical Islamists who will then stage attacks in the UK. What do you make of that claim? Because that was what a lot of the generals was, were saying. I don't know, it might. But then
3: what about Libya, Iraq, Syria, uh, much of the Maghreb, Somalia, uh, yeah. pa- a good portion of Pakistan, where, by the way, 9-11 was planned, we now know, in Karachi, uh, or for that matter, you know, parts of northern England. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, take your pick. I think concerning Afghanistan, the Taliban are far more, has, has a, <laughs> far more incentive to allow that not to happen than yeah. almost anybody else. I mean, I, I don't know what will happen. And by the way, concerning ISIS, it's worth your listeners understanding and knowing, I'm sure they do anyway, that the biggest enemies of ISIS in Afghanistan are who? The Taliban. Yeah, exactly. The Taliban are used uses ground
0: forces,
3: yeah, forces by the Americans to fight ISIS for the last couple of years, which is something which they don't,
1: neither side advertise, but yeah. it's absolutely true. We're gonna turn the clock back now. Your book, Losing Small Wars, starts in Basra in Iraq. I mean, it's a fantastic book, paints an extremely sorry picture of the British efforts in Iraq, you know, totally out of the depth, didn't understand the country, arrogant, you know, claiming their betterness than the Americans because of Northern Ireland, then soon having to get bailed out by the Americans after basically facilitating ethnic cleansing. After this disaster in Iraq, the top brass in the British military and British politicians are looking for a way to salvage their reputation, a, a good war, uh, and Afghanistan is that war. So the wars begin to overlap. There's a pivot from Iraq to Afghanistan. You say that that had an actual impact, firstly, on the war in Iraq. But just, you know, tell us about this like Falklands moment. So the military was scaled
3: explicitly, which is to say they would say that they were sized for two medium sized concurrent operations, which without going into too many details about brigades and divisions, were, was considerably more than was being envisaged in Iraq and Afghanistan. So they could just about handle Iraq. And they were handling it quite badly, it was going wrong, but they were pulling out. So, as you said there, this allowed for the army to try and recover its reputation, I would argue, in Helmand. And it's also the budgetary factor as well, because the army, look, there's no greater enemy for the army uh, than the navy and the air force, and the same applies in return. And the, the hair pulling and backstabbing that goes on in the Ministry of Defence is a perennial for at least 100 years, maybe a lot more than 100 years between the services. And the army was looking to get cut. It's going to lose, I think, about six infantry battalions from a, a total of 44 of us, I remember. So there's a good case to be made, let's put it that way, that the army's view was we need to use these infantry soldiers or we will lose them in the next cuts. So Helmand gave them the opportunity to scale their operation, to make it as big as they needed to ensure that that didn't happen. And I would argue that's exactly what they did. So we didn't need to go into Helmand or southern Afghanistan in the numbers we did. We didn't need to find the, fight the kind of war that we eventually did. The Americans don't need us, right? Yeah. And the same, by the way, in Iraq, but that's a different story. So this Helmand allowed the army, as, as you hinted there, to look for a moment which would, which would present it as recovering from Iraq and winning. And then, mm. of course, we're going to do that with the counterinsurgency. And the Falklands moment uh, that, you, that you call it, I think I call it as well, was a, you know, it was a Navy thing where everybody, everybody appreciated that the Navy couldn't be cut. It, uh, uh, you know, it has to be expanded and we need the Navy for this, that and the other. In that case, the Falklands. The idea was they do the same that. Helmand would do the same for the army. And that's why we had two big operations concurrently when we couldn't even handle one at that time in Iraq.
1: British were originally meant to take the north the province in the north of the country, you write in the book, not even uh, in Helmand. Uh,
3: they, they, well, they, they were in the northern the north for a few years, quite successfully, actually, or not unsuccessfully, with a small team up yeah. there of a few hundred soldiers, which did OK and providing security for Kabul as well. And that brings us into the grand strategy, which I'll just touch yeah, on, yeah. which, you know, that all that went wrong when we invaded Iraq. But uh, the British generals thought that, that we shouldn't have gone to Helmand. Sorry, some British generals and some more intelligent commentators. Not me, by the way. I didn't know anything about it at the time. <laughs> um, thought, thought just insert
2: that, yourself now into the narrative. Uh, like I was one <laughs> of the leading uh, critics. There so. no, definitely wasn't. No, I was. I had a clue what was going on. Um, but there were people who did
3: and uh, some of them were saying look we shouldn't go to Helmand we've got a bad history yeah. here um, if anything maybe we should be doing security in someone like Kandahar which is the cap- yeah. Taliban capital uh, but they were ignored and uh, the idea was B- Blair made the selection Helmand why because Helmand makes 50 percent of the world's world's heroin that was the reason to go to Helmand.
1: I wasn't going to talk about it but it is interesting and again it shows like you know I say the, the problems with I'm not saying necessarily the British liberal mindset but you know the the ignorance of the British colonialism and and history in general is you provide like a parted history of the British history in Afghanistan so there's you know two or three previous wars in Afghanistan three previous wars yeah three where they've been like you know roundly defeated widely despised particularly in um, Helmand particularly among the Pashtuns uh, because the falsely imposed border that that splits the traditional Pashtun uh, tribal homeland and I think you make the analogy like, you know, the idea of the British going around Helmand sort of bring in peace would just kind of be like the British army now going and, and like turning up in Southern Ireland and, be, and not realising anything about their history. It's that level of, of hatred.
3: Yeah, or the Falls Road or someone in Belfast and say, look, we're here to help.
1: <laughs> oh well, that's not're yeah, not in fifty years But ago. you know the entire population of the u k and the British military like literally not knowing yeah. anything about what's happened in the past, mm-hmm. which is i mean but that speaks to get you know wider issues in British yeah. society about the understanding of our of our history and so on. Tell us about the Hellman plan because in the bra right. there was originally a grand strategy which was you argue well thought out you know- again, you know within the context of okay we're here we're gonna we are gonna fight this war. There was a, pl- a plan which was then abandoned. So the group that was sent or the,
3: the brigade, which is about three and a half or four thousand people that was sent, was 16 Air Assault Brigade who were paratroopers and a very aggressive, very trained for one particular kind of war. And that war was not a subtle uh, counterinsurgency, which was unfortunate because the subtle counterinsurgency was what some of the army planners, well, in fact, they, they are. The army had planned for and the idea was, this is the Helmand plan, that they would take two cities which Lashkagar which is bigger than people would imagine, it's about 200,000 people uh, and another city about half the size Gereshk and that they would secure those cities right, in other words they'd, they'd put a put a, I saw a cordon around them, secure them and build from there. Now at the very least that has some intellectual integrity in, in, in the way they, th- they think about what counterinsurgency, which is the kind of war they were supposed to be fighting, was limited and it was possibly, I say possibly doable. Mm. And there have been some indications you could do that before because you need to have, you know, because of the, the number of soldiers w- was very limited. And by the way, three and a half thousand soldiers in the uh, airborne or the air mobile division, 16 air, air assault divisions as it's called, Translated only to about 200 soldiers able to go out on
1: the ground. Yeah, I've just found it. Like you said it was. We can find as a quote from a general. Uh, we can find 168 combat troops yeah. to conduct operations from the entire brigade. Yes, because the rest are engaged in guarding themselves,
3: administering themselves. Uh, you've got you've got routines like any other job. You've got uh, shifts, catering. catering, all that stuff, transport. Uh, supply, support, artillery, and all that kind of thing, which means that you've actually only got what amounts to about five platoons, 150,
2: 160 people who are able to go out on patrol. Now, can I, um, sorry, can I just jump in and to let the audience know that Helmand is massive and two and a half the times size of Wales, so to yes. have that like basically <laughs> what amounts to like you know a few troops like to you know <laughs> secure. <laughs> Yeah, where <laughs> is that? Secure an area that's almost three times bigger yeah. than this country. Yeah, yeah.
3: And 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 you know, with a couple of hundred soldiers to do it. So basically, <laughs> so what happened then is they decided instead of securing someone like I don't know Aberystwyth, I mean Swansea's bigger than bigger than than Lashkagar, but you know, it's a town of a hundred thousand or so. Yeah, which I think Aber would be maybe maybe even smaller than that. What they decided to do was to go and, and, and spread the force throughout the whole country mm. with little groups, you know, you'd have of soldiers of 30 or 40 strong called platoons in various little towns. So you can put that into a Welsh context. And they were uh, scattered over, uh, over a, an area actually about the size of Wales, because much of Helmand is twice the size of Wales, but much of it is desert. And, you know, no one lives there, but there are areas in the mountains and near the rivers. So you've got, you've got, Five or six areas, so they put 30 soldiers in each area, and so yeah. they and it, that's called the charge up the valley, because the idea was, well, we're not going to do this lashkagar, this this securing the cities the small cities, which we might be able to do. Instead, we're going to try and secure the whole country and fight all the bad guys. Now, there's huge controversy as to why they did that. No one wants to take the blame for that, and there was five, about four or five chains of command involved, very confusing orders and. Even now, historians and soldiers haven't been able to disentangle this mess. But the result was, anyway, you had four or five bases manned by 30 or 40 soldiers in each, all of them ending up besieged yeah. by people they called the Taliban, not all of whom were, in fact, the Taliban.
1: And you basically say that because of the small numbers of soldiers and because they ended up being almost predictably like besieged in these like platoon houses, yeah. they then... Almost understandably, deploy like huge amounts of firepower, calling airstrikes, yeah. like totally destroying like these towns, these town centers, you know, causing thousands of civilian casualties. Obviously, like loads of soldiers get killed as well, but you know, it's just it's incredibly to use military partners, like kinetic environment, like inc- incredible levels of violence, yes, which just immediately, as you said, it loses the local population just right at the beginning of the campaign you know like it's, you just kill loads of people you destroy the towns destroy the infrastructure and it said you couldn't have done any more to sort of drive people into the arms of the the Taliban
3: right H- having regard
1: to two other factors right
3: first is we've already mentioned the British are literally the worst people in the world to send to Helmand literally President Ghani, when he came to power, said, what, "What are the British doing there? It's literally the worst place, Helmand, yeah. to send them." So they start behind. Uh, just to give you, just to give you a, a little vignette, I was talking to some people on the on the on the one of the missions that went to to scope the place out a few months before the main deployment, and uh, they are in a village, and they'd landed by. No, they were coming. In, we went in a Land Rover, and uh, they were sitting around in the little group and talking away in their uniforms. And one of them was a senior officer. And at one point, the one of the older guys, Afghan guys, said, uh, "Just remind us, sir, uh, uh, where are you from?" And uh, so oh, well, we're British. Okay, so the interpreter had a bit of a chat with the the older guy, and the old man said something to him, and then the interpreter said, "Sir," to the British sir. Um, you have five minutes to leave or you will be killed. They did not know you were British. And I found, you know, even when I was, I was only there a few months as a, as a civilian advisor, but I got out of, I tried to get out every day and talk to people. And I remember people saying, you know, that whilst the Russians brought fire and the sword to Helmand uh, and to the rest of the country, At least they left some kind of legacy in the form of roads, secure cities because they did follow that strategy. By the way, the Russians, they secured the cities so you could go out at night or in the day. You weren't going to get kidnapped or, you know, you wouldn't be seeing sex slaves around and all that kind of stuff in the same way in the cities. They secured those and people remembered that. And so when the British show up with this mayhem in all of the major centres of this province, Essentially, the size of Wales, although it is, as you say, bigger if you, if you count the deserts and what have you. Uh, and 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 the chaos that followed that the indis- and it was indiscriminate use of force, which, by the way, you or I would probably use as well, because otherwise we're going to get overrun. Then people start thinking, well, yeah, here we go, the British are back. Yeah, it's obviously, not
2: exactly an apology tour, is it? Like,
1: no. but obviously, there's the you know, the, obviously, there's a huge the the moral issues here not just the, the amount of Af- Afghanis who were killed. We don't, like I said, we, Frank said in the book, like we don't even know. No idea. People didn't keep count. But also, I mean, this is obviously not not to diminish those casualties, but like in terms of the, how tangible it is in my life, you know, the, like, the amount of people I've known essentially being ruined by their experiences and, you know, young men who've come back and, you know, ruined for life because of their experiences in, in that war. And as you said, put in these situations, which was going to be a disaster right from the start, under-equipped you make the interesting comparison between the Soviet Union's efforts and the British and you realise how totally like half-arsed the whole thing was right down to you said like the the tactics that were deployed you make the comparison with Northern Ireland like in Northern Ireland it would have been seen as absolutely mad to send out British army patrols onto roads into IRA areas just to invite attacks on them but that's exactly what was the strategy and sort of tactics were in Afghanistan it was like we'll patrol out until we get attacked then it's called the a come on yeah yeah and then we can yeah then we can call in uh, airstrikes. but you know essentially going out and waiting until someone shoots you um, would have been seen as crazy in another context but it was became normalized in Afghanistan and you just think obviously you obviously have Frank but you know I we haven't had to experience that sort of terror and the idea of having to do that it just it just seems totally surreal I'm just a well, I can't say I
3: can't say Dan. I've never been involved in a in a, in a in a big ambush in Iraq or Afghanistan. I was involved in some in the Balkans, but um, I can't I can't claim that. But yes, you're, you're, you know you're right. It's uh, it's extremely uh, frightening. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, and like you know, cutting cut through. I mean, I read you know Dead Men Risen, which is the yeah. amazing book by Toby Harden about of um, the Welsh Guards in so. and I think I don't know if it was your book as well, but you know cutting through the idea of military heroism you know the idea that before going out of these you know out on patrol you know you'd regularly get soldiers just thrown up in terror because of the the the, the horror of going out and, and waiting to get shot and not knowing if you're going to come back or you know that's you know it, once you cut through the militarism and the jingoism and the bullshit that saturates british society the, the the reality is a lot more of wars is a lot more horrific in the guardian article You spoke about Blair talking about opium. The big problem with the Afghanistan war is that there was no no one knew why we were there. Like you said, the original justification was we're going to invade Afghanistan to stop al-Qaeda. Then that changes to, oh, we're going to stop the opium being produced in an area where the majority of the population depend on the opium crop for their income. So the justification for being there was vague and kept changing.
3: Yeah, I think somebody did a survey, I think it was around 2013, an army officer, actually, and asked a, a few hundred soldiers what reasons they thought they had for being there. And I think she came up with uh, 17 reasons that people could come up with for why, why they were there, including, I can say, opium. Then there was girls' education and was bringing governance and human rights. And then there was uh, just a counterinsurgency straight up. Then there was international terror. And um, and so on and so forth. I mean, most recently, of course, we've had the reiteration of girls' education. Yeah. Um, which.
1: A whole chestnut.
3: Yes. <laughs> um, but, um, but well, you know, we can pa- pass over that. Now, if you were to ask an Estonian soldier, I understand why he was there, he would have, be very clear. And he'd say, we're here because we want the Americans to be there for us in the same way as we were for them. That's what they say, which is straightforward coherent and probably correct Yeah. and frankly you know that's another reason of course you get British soldiers saying but that's that's the reason we were there yeah of course is, then, you you know, special uh, relationship. and frankly that's coherent intellectually it's it's arguable I mean yeah. and uh, at least it's and, honest and it's honest and had we been given that as a reason I think a lot of people would have said okay then or well, fair enough at least it's connected in some way to our security now we can argue whether it should be it's a different issue but it's a coherent but there was never any coherent reason. I mean, I, I wrote to eight defence secretaries for writing my second book, about, which is about the costs of the war to Afghans and us, and asked them, did they have any strategy? And most of them replied to say they couldn't be bothered or they were too busy or what have you. But one of them, uh, he rang me up one day. I won't say who it is because he asked me not to. You might guess it he was a very forthright uh, forthright guy. And uh, he said uh, he said, the only strategy I could see when I was in government, in Helmand, in Defence Secretary, was to get Tony re-elected. Yeah. I said, I said, what do you, what, what do you mean? He said, so that was the only strategy I was aware of for our, any yeah. anything we did, and particularly that. I said, OK, well, thanks for that. So that's yeah. where we were, confused, contradictory,
2: uh, scatterbrained at all levels. was we'll sort kind of like inherently cynical isn't it just yeah. you know, uh, might get like a bit of a boost in the polls if like i completely destabilize a region
1: yeah yeah it's like something off uh in the, Well, it's like in the loop isn't it um yeah. Wipe the dog yeah well i mean we'll we'll, we'll come on now to strategy in, in, in a very short while but i mean there's i thought quite a poignant thing you wrote in the Guardian recently frank you said that you know the war was totally lost by 2008 yeah. for all yeah. purposes, but it you know to british were totally <laughs> beaten but in Helmand, but it dragged on anyway for six more years. Well, yes. rich soldiers were getting killed right up till beyond 2014, I, I believe, or maybe not. Um, but, you know, the, the six more bloody years for no reason at all.
3: Uh, I would say so, yes. Uh, I mean, the, the, so 2008, uh, it was apparent that, the, in the words of one of the generals who was deployed there, uh, who's now chief of the general staff, Carlton Smith, that he said you know quite wisely uh, we can't win this war we need a political answer right we're not going to defeat the Taliban. Uh, he'd had a bit of a reality check I think Carlton Smith because previous in his tour he said the Taliban on yeah. the back foot and it's only you know, yeah. just one more push but anyway look we, we all make mistakes and uh, uh, he, he, you know that's what he said in 2008 obviously he was silenced immediately and probably wouldn't repeat that now but it was apparent to anybody certainly by 2009 when the Brits had been pinned back from having some form of some kind of presence in 14 districts of Helmand to a presence only in three. And those presences consisted essentially of just being at the police station, the range of the machine guns around various little patrol bases. And that was the presence in an area which you say is the size of Wales. So that's where we were. We were besieged to three districts. And at that point, the Americans came in to bail us out, just as they did in Basra, uh, three or four years before that. And by the way, they weren't too best pleased that the British who had undertaken to provide security in Helmand now required much of the surge of Obama to go to Helmand to bail them out. But that's what needed to be done. The book is about
1: the operational level, you know, so which is not necessarily politics, but a military strategy. And But as you say, the whole thing from the politicians involved to the, the top brass of the British army, there was absolutely no strategy, no coherent thinking at all. Just going to briefly get into some of the, touch on some of the reasons that you you talk about in the book. You know, you do go into great detail in a number of different areas, but it does seem to me similar to other sort of class based analyses of British society, which often does seem to be stuck in, you know, feudal times. So it's almost like the the Tom Nairn, Perry Anderson thesis, but applied to like the, the, the British military as like a case study. When I was reading the book, my take was it was, it's almost this imperial. Class-based like hubris, and you describe it as a culture. This culture of like cracking on. But I guess our outsiders who are you know aren't in the military or maybe aren't from the UK would just look at that and and read it as arrogance born of elitism born of empire. Because you know we do we encounter it in other areas of British society all the time, be it Brexit or whatever. And it's the same type of people, the ruling class. Do you want to just speak a little bit about like you know the, the this cult this culture of well, it's a, a top-heavy army with loads of generals. as you say none oh. of them? None of them will. None of them ever resign for failing. It's a culture which rewards failure. It doesn't even. You know, it obviously doesn't seem unique to the British military because look at look at British politics. Look at every every other aspect of British life. It's almost like a failed state essentially. Yes. Well, the British Army
3: is is the British class system incarnate, you know, I mean, yeah, yeah. not all of it, to be fair. So so the way it works in brief is <clears throat> that most of the teeth arms, which are the fighting arms, the alley arms, as it were, which means that yeah. the, the ones that festoon themselves with some kind of weaponry, uh, they are officered by public schoolboys majority. Yeah. Right. So you've got the cavalry, the infantry regiments, and they're graded. Informally, yeah. yeah, in seniority yeah. and in basically, you or I might say, certainly I would, in poshness uh, yeah. and social acceptance. Yeah, yeah. Uh, some some regiments, like let's say the Welsh Guards um, or any of the Guards regiments, are enti- almost entirely officered by private, privately educated boys. There are exceptions. There are exceptions. Ec- many, but the, the generality is that it's very socially exclusive. And that means that you're, because most generals are drawn from these teeth regiments, the other ones, the logistics, the the real ones who actually do a a great deal of the the really important work, they're normal people, including the officers, right? Engineers, people who can actually do things. Whereas infantry regiments, that's real, that's soldiering in what they would regard as the real sense. So what happens is at the upper end, you get a situation. I'll just go right to the top without getting into any details. People might find tedious, but this isn't tedious. We've had 21 chiefs of the general staff since 1990. I had a look at them all. 21. And of those 21, 20 have been public school boys with one guy, General Horton. That was I think it was General Horton, maybe maybe two who were grammar school boys. And all the rest have been public school boys from the top, top end private schools. Uh, uh, and from five regiments. And, ne- ne- you know, most of those regiments, the more socially exclusive ones. Now, people will say, as they would say, of the fact that we've got too many Etonians in government or too many public school boys in the cabinet or what have you. Say, well, that's just the way it is. It's meritocracy. But, you know, the world's finest fighting service is the U.S. Marine Corps. It's not like that, Dan.
1: Mm.
3: You know, this is a legacy of centuries of of, of, of yeah honestly centuries of a class system that's becoming ever daily ever more dysfunctional frankly but i mean that's a different topic but yeah but, the army the army mirrors that very close the army does less so
2: the navy and the air force to be fair you uh, mentioned in uh, your most recent garden article that um a general in there like, was it the late 1700s was executed yeah would that be something that you'd be in well <laughs> state? I mean, he comes quite <laughs> close as <it>, an <laughs> effective way to you know <laughs> decrease the bloated um amount that of generals was, at the top I, I, and
1: I, I, to kind of change the the first, the, the, first culture. Draft of, the first draft of loose and small wars is like a final chapter where he calls for like a court martial and execution where <laughs> up.
3: well I, I i'm not sure i mean there are those there are those nathan you know not not me but but you know we've got 400 today 444 or 43 general officers for uh an armed forces of about one hundred and forty thousand. Right, the American uh Marines has two hundred over two hundred thousand, and it has ninety two general officers. Right, so we're rather over officered, to put it mildly.
2: So this I is like a kind of a hidden yes,
3: then. It's it's <laughs> well you you know you said that not me, Nate, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think we could do with a color. Put in all seriousness I, and. This is a, something that really they don't like to talk about at all. It's the, it's the huge, and it is huge compared with the likes of the United States, actually, who, who by the way, themselves regard themselves as overgeneral. Uh, there's a real preponderance of, of uh, the top end. It's very top heavy by comparison with, with really functional forces, the American Marines, American Army, even the Army, the Israelis, Really effective armed forces. We've got far more general officers, and I would suggest that that dilutes the quality, and also also reflects a, a culture where accountability can be can be uh, uh, spread around, which it regularly is, and that's not the case in
1: more effective armed forces. The first edition of the book came out in 2011, I believe, which is you know 10 years ago. Yeah. You know, since then, obviously, Afghanistan has fallen um you know what next now for british foreign policy and like military adventures and because you've written a series of guardian articles over the last few years which you've like strongly and you know correctly argued against military intervention in libya and syria but obviously it's the same, exactly the same people who argued for the war in iraq afghanistan you know the military and the liberal liberal establishment making the exact same arguments you know almost as if iraq and afghanistan didn't happen uh, and the, the the insane fallouts from those wars didn't happen You know, they've either got the minds of goldfish or, or as you suggest, it simply doesn't affect people enough for them to think about in in too much. By and large, it's not the kids of Guardian journalists or politicians who are being uh, killed. Good point. Yeah. You know, so what's going to happen? What's going to happen next?
3: Well, you do have this entrenched idea in, in the political establishment, particularly the conservative political establishment, that uh, we have a a sort of divinely ordained mission. now Whether we can, you know, have the resources to achieve that mission is, uh, after the last 20 years, certainly questionable, but it doesn't mean that they question it. So let me give you an example. On the day the Taliban entered Kabul, which I think was around the 20th of August, you had very senior conservative MPs, these veterans, you know, these chaps that fought and they know the score and all this, uh, who, who, who said that, and I quote, this is as Taliban fighters are wandering into Kabul trying to keep order, as uh, and as the, 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 the airlift is being planned, which is chaotic. So as this is happening, you have the... Chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee and the Chairman of the Defence Committee both saying words to the effect of, or in one case, actually saying, it's not too late to turn this around. <laughs> yeah, I'm like quoting it. there. It's like saying a blackadder, isn't it? It's, it I, 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 I couldn't, literally couldn't believe what I was hearing and wrote it down. But it does reflect that sort of quixotic upper middle class attitude that we've got in this country that the British military are a force for good. And that being a force for good, that gives us a a, a, a that applies to us a determinism, which means that we, you know, if we can find any, you know, any nails, we'll go and hammer them without the capacity or the or the insight, the strategy or the thinking to back any of it up. And you know, I could go into the size of the armed forces and their capabilities now, and a lot of it is is, is illusory. I take the view, you know, that and I'm sure most of your listeners do, frankly, that defence forces should confine themselves to their advertised role and not engage in invasion, occupation, uh, so-called humanitarian intervention, malleting evil people wherever they they raise their heads. But, of course, the dynamics of the... You know, I know it's a cliche, but I'll say it anyway. The military-industrial complex, and add that, add to that, this sort of political hangover from decades of doing this, means that we're probably, unfortunately, going to go on doing this, it, probably at a smaller scale, um, because that's what they're configured for. We have two car- aircraft carriers. Now, what are they for, if not for this kind of activity? They'd be, they would last forty minutes against the Chinese air force. Yeah it um, might be a bit more useful against the Russians, but they probably won't be deployed against them. So what are they for? And the answer is they're platforms for 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 attack from the, the sea in an intervention scenario. That's what they're for, unfortunately, just as their predecessors were. And that, The whole Navy's configured around that and the army is designed for out of
1: area operations now. As, they but call. A, you, as you said, you know, there is a, a symbiotic relationship between this upper middle class belief in sort of the divine right of the British Armed Forces uh, and Guardian Readers is a cliche but you know people who are erstwhile progressives and and their inherent belief in humanitarian intervention. But I mean just you touched on. You're glad you touched on the military-industrial complex because, in the book, you know I was like, well, this Frank's providing us with quite an orthodox Marxist explanation for the per, permanent drive. I, I wouldn't oh. describe that myself, but I'm happy to. <laughs> um, but you know, it, it's it, which is inherent to the military as an institution. Yeah. And, you, know, not, you know, but you've got you you do provide the bait in quotes from the top brass. Essentially saying we need a war because otherwise they'll cut the army, they'll cut our budget, and or otherwise it's down to the individual arms using all the huge, the high tech stuff they've got like attack helicopters, and then you know using these things even if they're not appropriate just because we've we've bought all these helicopters, you so we're going to have to some. use them to explode loads of villages. But you know that this is the I'd say the the left explanation for why there's a permanent drive for the next war is about the military industrial complex is a self sustaining. Thing which is at the heart of the British. Uh, establishment. You even gave the example
2: of um, the French uh, French involvement in Libya was basically so um, a manufacturer of uh, fighter jets could show off the new uh, the new line.
3: Yeah, well, and, and yeah, very close connections, well, with the oil companies there, and same to a lesser extent for Italy, uh, and, and and indeed for ourselves with the BP. Yeah, that's that's Libya for you. Yeah, um, concerning Afghanistan, I mean, you only need to look at the shares of British Aerospace over the last two decades to to see now is that contingent to is it is it causative of or is it a result of you know well go figure it but it just happens that every time we fight a war shares of arms companies go up for very good reasons
2: (laughs) that's how we
1: made our money isn't it dan yeah that's how we funded the podcast uh, yeah (laughs) good for you you lads (laughs) (laughs) but the usp almost of the uk to, to the world you know, and its role as a permanent subordinate partner to the, to the usa and its sort of massive empire is as you say there's always been like one operational experience you know uh, uh, the idea that brits can go and share expertise yeah. across like nato partners and be respected because they're battle hard and they've been in afghanistan and iraq even though we like lost you know but there isn't there a problem now for the from the perspective of like generals because we're soon going to be in a place which is quite unique where the majority of the british armed forces won't have experienced combat So they're going to lose that unique selling point of of having experienced combat, which they then use to sort of when they go to like the Turkish armed forces or the Spanish armed forces or whatever. And say, this is what we've learned, you know. So there's always going to be a drive for the next war to keep that edge and to keep that USP. So it seems like there's going to be a lot of people in the the top of the army who are very, very sort of itchy at the moment. The fact that we're not in a, a combat zone somewhere. Right. Well, look, I mean, for, you, you might not have picked this up from what I've said up to now. I really like the British
3: Army. And I like British soldiers. I think they're the best in the world, genuinely. But the problem they have is that they've spent the last 20 years fighting these brush wars mm. and they're not equipped now to fight. You know, I mean, God forbid we ever get in any, uh, any sort of conflict with a major power, but, but uh, you know, equipped to fight, fight a, a serious competitor. Yeah. So, for example, you know, you get. I've heard that the British soldiers went to Ukraine, you know, for better or worse, a conflict. And I've heard British soldiers say they're really well set up but, and they, they're they really combat hardened. They're ready and they're well equipped. Now, that isn't the case now for us. We're not ready for that. Yeah. Uh, we don't have the equipment. We don't have the kit. We've probably got the training. We don't have the experience to do that. Now, that's a good thing because we haven't been involved in heavy yeah. combat. But um you, you know, that, that's a matter for the army as to how they're how they're going to cope with that re- reset after 20 years of failed brush wars against, you know, effectively men with, with rifles. But just back to the American thing, it's important to remember this and it's really it, it, it's becoming apparent. The American armed forces view of the British to a very great degree because of Afghanistan, where, where we were bailed out and Iraq where the same thing happened and then left is that the British have a tendency, this is the political and upper military level, to, to write checks they can't cash. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and as one very famous American general said, I think it was Petraeus, there'll be a bad smell about the British army for a long time because of what happened in Iraq. And that was before what happened in Afghanistan took place. Yeah. So that's a long-term legacy that the army has to deal with, putting aside all the politics and you know military-industrial complex. It's it's a serious thing that because to some extent we've lost that closeness with the Americans, that 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 that, that, that seamless link that perhaps we had way back.
1: I would Maybe assume yes. always illusory. Yes. Yeah, so I was going to say, Frank, very briefly. I mean, you, you've said there's always been a split in the British military in the one it wants to keep itself prepared for like large-scale maneuver warfare yeah. like you know in ukraine or whatever the next war will be and it keeps getting deployed as you said smaller low intensity you know conflicts like you know, counter-insurgency and that split seems to still be there in like the current pivot doesn't it you know like mm-hmm. on the one hand the british troops are moving to africa presumably to fight counterinsurgencies, and on the other hand they go into <laughs> what the plains of <laughs> The crime, the crime, the the, the, the Crimea. Two yeah. very different sort of types of war. I mean, just
3: concerning that, British people should understand now that the army is extremely small. Yeah. it's got it can deploy effectively, probably one brigade, which is about five thousand people now, and it take it's going to take weeks to do that. That's where we are now. They won't have any decisive effect anywhere, and I could go into the navy and the air force as well. The air force is pretty well set up, actually as they always tend to do well out of these political um, uh, machinations. But the, the, the Navy's wrecked after 20 years of this, and they're just rebuilding. And the army is wrecked for reasons we've just gone through. And we're at a critical point now um, where you'd have to question the eff- effectiveness of British intervention anywhere outside, perhaps some poor African, West African country which has got a coastline nearby.
1: I mean, there is a pivot to Africa going on at the moment, like the US, obviously moving towards Africa. But I mean, I always thought that the British, if they were going to deploy to a conflict now, would just be like maybe a small battle group within an American. I think so. It has to be that. The American uh, formation under American command.
3: Yeah, that would be the case. But, you know, I'm thinking of a European (laughs) style War defense yeah, the yeah. Baltic states or whatever, yeah, yeah, uh, and even then it would take weeks to deploy that. So you know p- 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 and the army under no illusions about that. they realize they're in a critical situation, and it's going to take years to rebuild and rethink as well, Dan. That's the other thing is because I think a lot of the leaders they have now are extremely good, right? They've gone through the mill. They know what happened. Everything I've said, most people would, 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 would in the military would, certainly the army would agree with. I've never had my chest poked for seriously for any of this stuff because most of it's taken from, uh, you know, their views. I'm not clever enough to come up with these ideas myself and certainly don't have the experience, but they do. And there's a lot of good leaders now. There's a lot of excellent and senior NCOs, although some of them are now leaving, uh, some very good senior officers. And I think, they, they realise they're at a, criti- at a critical juncture here and that probably the time is for reset, is for rethinking and trying to establish, along with the rest of the country, what we're for.
1: Well, I was going to ask you where the next war is going to be and when it's going to be, but like, it, it, you think it's feasible that there, there, there may actually be a period of uh no, settling back into the <laughs> No, I think I think we're
3: going to get involved in East Asia now. I think that the Royal Marines are certainly pivoting that way, and they're a significant chunk of our yeah. ground capability, you know, if you can call them that. Um,
1: well, all the money's been pumped into our future commando force, isn't it?
3: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and and it's interesting the way the Marines are going now. They're they're going very far away from the Army, different uniforms, different weapons. Yeah, it's it's very interesting that as a special forces E. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, the Navy's looking looking east. Yeah, but I mean, you have to ask ask strategically, as General Austin, who's the American Secretary of Defense now, did. Who, by the way, was the general that relieved the British general in Basra, which is often forgotten. But uh, you know, he he gently asked when the British aircraft carrier sailed somewhat pointlessly to the South China Sea, and it's there now, I think, around there, said, "Well, wouldn't it be better employed elsewhere?" I don't. The Americans don't don't want the British Navy in in any kind of force there. They've got. They've got their own assets there, but they do want the British to look after their own backyard, which we're not doing.
1: Just uh, briefly, you mentioned about Churchill wanting um, a, a, <laughs> an, a, an aircraft carrier or something made out of ice. Is that true? <laughs> yes, that's correct. Yeah. <laughs>
3: he used to have all these ideas, you know, invading Yugoslavia was another one. I think he had this idea of invading Norway instead of France and the underbelly of Europe. And all <laughs> but the thing about Churchill was he was a visionary, but he had this superb um Uh, Chief of the General Staff, Alan Brooke, who used to keep him in check and was a realist, you know, a really superb leader. We often forgotten now, but he's as near to a great general as we had in the Second World War.
1: Frank, you've been an absolute legend. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, Very quickly, before you have to go, any shout outs or do you want to start any beefs with anyone other than obviously the generals? uh, (laughs) I I wish them all the best. (laughs) best. But but look, seriously, you know, they've got some good leaders now.
3: Um, they're, They're no fools, these people. They may be posh, but they're no fools. And uh, perhaps there should be a f- a fewer of them, but uh, n- not because they're, they're ill-intentioned or evil people. They're not. And as for the soldiers themselves, genuinely, were the best. They're the best trained soldiers, sailors, airmen, and marines in the world. But I just wish we had we had uh, we'd use them better and 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 for 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 causes that were worthwhile
1: and worth their blood and sacrifice. Thank you so much for coming on, Frank. Like yeah, I said, uh, f- uh, losing small wars, British military failure enough. Iraq and Afghanistan by Frank Ledwich, uh, Yale University Press, uh, order it now. It's, it's a fantastic book, and if you want to understand what unfolds in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, you, you need to read that book. So yeah, Thank you, Dan. Thanks so much, Frank. And obviously, read Frank's working at Guardian. We'll be tweeting out all the, the articles he's written about foreign policy and defence and so on as well. Top Thank man. Thank you, sir. All right,
4: Thanks so nice much. Armed guards on the gate, Parliament's open for business. Security's never been so high at Westminster, and every MP queuing at the barriers knew why. Tony Blair's deputy was looking even grimmer than usual. This debate's a prelude to a new kind of war. And in the Commons, the Prime Minister had no doubt it was justified by what happened on September the 11th. He delivered his verdict of
5: guilt. For myself and all other government ministers who have studied the full information, we have absolutely no doubt that bin Laden and his network were responsible for the attacks on the 11th of September.
4: The Prime Minister said he was handing MPs a file of evidence, sensitive intelligence left out, but enough to show that Osama bin Laden's network was the right target, and with it the Taliban, unless even now they handed over the terrorists. Meanwhile, food and aid was on its way.
5: The Afghan people are not our enemy, for they have our sympathy and they will have our support. Our enemy is Osama bin Laden and the Al-Qaeda network who were responsible for the events of the 11th of September. The Taliban regime must yield them up or become our enemy also.
4: So the military and humanitarian effort were both ready. The war aims clear. The Allies were already in contact with Afghans who might eventually be placed to take over power. The response would be measured, driven by
5: necessity and reason. We will not act for revenge. We will act because we need to, for the protection of our people and our way of life including confidence in our economy. The threat posed by Bin Laden and his terrorism must be eliminated. We act for justice. We act with world opinion behind us. And we have an absolute determination to see justice done and this evil of mass international terrorism confronted and defeated.
4: Then it was the new Tory leader's turn. Ian Duncan-Smith had been briefed privately in his new role and his support for the coming conflict in Afghanistan was unqualified.
0: The Prime Minister has shared with me more than perhaps he is able to present here today. And on that basis, I am convinced that Osama bin Laden, al-Qaeda and the Taliban are guilty as charged. Any war against these people is a just war.
4: But he did more than echo Mr Blair, he wanted the spotlight turned on Iraq and tougher sanctions against Islamic extremists preaching violence in this country.
0: When Sheikh Omar Bakri Mohammed can claim that the Prime Minister is a legitimate target for assassination if he visits a Muslim country and can make that statement from the safety of this country, we need to review our anti-terrorism laws as a matter of (laughs) urgency.
4: The Lib Dem leader raised humanitarian fears but remained supportive.
0: The evidence
5: to hand is indeed persuasive. Persuasive as to culpability and persuasive as to breathtaking
4: criminality. Tony Blair's already on his way to Moscow. The government in Pakistan is saying that's the next stop on his list. It's a late push to strengthen and reinforce the alliance. Tony Blair already has the support he wants from politicians at home. The military action that will test that national and international solidarity is coming closer. John Pienaar, BBC News, Westminster.